Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of the things that I have noticed through the years as a pastor in um, being around especially younger families is that mothers can be very insecure. Mothers can be worriers. Sometimes I think mothers worry that they're just a, a bad mother. My kids are never going to turn out well, and I am the one that's ruining their lives. I remember one time when Jonathan was a little boy, Janet was uh, seeking uh, a new relationship with a pediatrician. He was beginning to uh, grow up a little bit, and he was uh, preschool, but heading, uh, getting older, and she needed to establish a new pediatrician, and so she went to the doctor, and she came home, and she had a real sheepish look on her face, and I was asking, well, how did it go? And she said, I think I'm just a terrible mom. She said, um, the doctor began to ask questions, and, and uh, he was talking to Jonathan, and we were there getting acquainted, and he said, now, Jonathan, do you like to ride your bicycle? And Jonathan said, yes, I love to ride my bicycle. And he said, now, you wear your helmet when you ride your bicycle, don't you? And Jonathan said, oh, no, I quit wearing my helmet a long time ago. And... Uh, Janet kind of shrunk back a little bit. And then he said, well, Johnny, you're still riding in your car seat, aren't you? He said, oh, no, I'm big boy. I don't ride in my car seat anymore. So you buckle in your car seat. Oh, and Janet shrunk down a little bit more. And he asked a few more questions, and the quiz wasn't going very well. And, and uh, finally, he got to a question. He said, uh, he said, now, how about guns? Do you have guns in your home? I'm not sure it was really his business, but um, he said, um, Jonathan said, hey, quickly, oh yeah, my daddy has lots of guns. And, and he said, um, now they're in a safe, right? They're locked up in a safe. Now, now, this was a good day for me because I had been trying to figure out how to approach Janet that I could spend about a thousand bucks on a safe. I didn't have a safe. And she's telling me the story. And so now she feels about two inches tall. Um, I, I forgot to tell you that back on the seatbelt story, uh, Jonathan piped in with the doctor, said, now, you're, you're in your car seat, right? No, you wear your seatbelt. Uh, he said, no, lots of times, he said, I, I, something like, my, I ride in the back of my daddy's pickup truck down the road. He said, <laughs> well, I don't know if we did that one time from my driveway to the pavilion entrance. We always usually cut through the woods, a little detail he left out, but back to the guns, um, he said, Do you have, you have a, your daddy has a safe at home, right? He said, no. And, and, uh, well, and Janet came home, and one of the first things she said as she was telling me this account, she said, um, and don't you think you better go buy a safe right away? And I said, you know, that's a good thought. Let me consider that. Well, moms, I want to encourage you today. Uh, I want to tell you, uh, as I watch our congregation uh, you're doing a better job than you think you are. We have so many wonderful mothers here, so many wonderful children, and um, we're blessed, aren't we? And I want to encourage you mothers today uh, to worry a little less and to get your eyes on the Lord. I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, and how I want to encourage mothers today is I want you to, I want you to recognize the fact that your children actually are catching more from you than they are learning day to day from your words. Where I study down in my dungeon, the part of our unfinished basement where I have a desk arrangement and I have 
pictures plastered to the wall to try to bring a little bit of life from the gray cement block. Straight ahead at my study desk is a picture of my family taken about 1964, 1965. And uh, it's our, my five, the five of us, four siblings and myself, my mom and my dad. I like it that my, I'm standing right in front of my mother and her hand is on my shoulder. I look at it often. It's a very dated picture. You can tell it's the mid-60s. And I think about my mother as a pastor's wife, as a mother of five children, some uh, teenage daughters down to my younger brother who was about two or three years old in the picture. All of the demands on her life, all of the things that she was dealing with, and on top of it, uh, very low income where my dad served in his church there, always trying to make do. And I think about all of the ways that my mother taught me, most of which was not in a structured setting. I recognize that we have many homeschool teachers here in the forms of moms and children, and that you teach your children, and you're there learning a lot. We have a wonderful graduation coming up, but more than anything, your children will learn just from the spillover of your life. How you live your life is teaching your children. We're in Galatians chapter 5 today in our home and family series as we seek to encourage mothers. We're asking ourselves the sort of dumb question, where would we be without mothers? Well, duh, we wouldn't be here for one thing. But I really want to ask that question, where would we be without our mothers? How much our mothers contribute to our lives. And what I want to do today in the subtitle of our sermon in Galatians chapter 5 is that there are nine markers, nine marks that I want to encourage you with, mothers, today that are, that are the marks of an influential mother. As you live out the fruit of the Spirit in your life, your children will catch it. It doesn't mean they're going to catch it overnight, and it doesn't mean you can't have children that will break your heart. But I'm telling you, don't despair. Stop worrying. Get your eyes on Christ and let the fruit of the Spirit be evident in your life. Now, interestingly enough, Galatians chapter 5 is not written to mothers. It's written to a church, and we're a church, so the message is for the whole church with an encouraging application to mothers. Let's read our text. It's Galatians chapter 5, and we begin with verse 16, and we'll read through verse 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit... Okay, stop. Notice that it's a capital S. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. Let your life be ruled and governed under the control of that member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you have been to the cross and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a child of God, the Bible teaches us clearly that the Spirit of God indwells the believer. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to guide us in our decision-making. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Don't you know that feeling? I want to be a better mom. I want to have better self-control. I want to stop being angry. I want to love my husband better. And you have a desire, but it's using in contrast 
to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this word, the flesh. What's he talking about? Flesh. He's talking about our natural selves in the form of our body. We have desires. We have uh, thought patterns. We have attitudes. And, and some of that we struggle to bring in under the control of the Holy Spirit. Some of us have lived terrible lives outside of Christ. And then we go to the cross. We, we understand that Christ died on the cross for my sin. I accept his forgiveness. God wipes away the record of my sinfulness. He credits to my account the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And yet I still have a battle with the flesh. Sometimes the things I want to do, I don't do. And sometimes the things I don't want to do, I do. And I'm struggling to come in underneath the control of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about to the Galatian believers here. He's presenting a contrast He's presenting a contrast of the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of a person who doesn't care about Christ, or the natural tendencies of a human being versus that of somebody who is being conformed to the image of Christ and is growing anew and afresh in Christ, and they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, verse 17 again. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. But if you are led by the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Okay, he's going to give an example. This is a sampling. This isn't exhaustive at all. Nor are the fruits of the Spirit in this passage exhaustive. He's going to give a sampling. This is what it looks like when you're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Impurity has to do with uh, sensual things or sexual things as well that are unclean. They are uh, improper. Sensuality. Sensuality, the, the word there has the idea of an unrestrained passion, indulging yourself in things that you ought not to indulge in. So he says the deeds of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. That's putting things in front of God in my life. Sorcery, that's a word might be witchcraft in your Bible. By the way, in the Greek, which the English was translated from the Greek when the New Testament was written, that word sorcery right there, or witchcraft in your Bible, comes from a Greek word that sounds something like this. Pharmakia. Pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy from it. It has to do with drugs. And there is a direct association in our world of drugs and, and Satan and witchcraft and sorcery has to do with the things that are not becoming of God or the Holy Spirit. Idolatry, worshiping things other than God, even myself. Sorcery, enmity, that's being hateful. Divisive attitudes, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries. That's that's being part of an identifiable group that doesn't like another identifiable group. You might call one Republicans and one Democrats, I don't know. But rivalries, dissensions. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. It's an odd word that he throws in there, orgies. Remember, in the context of the culture of the time at Galatia, he's writing to a, a city where there were pagan rituals that in, included uh, uh, huge sexual-centered parties and group and mass. We would call them universities today. And things like these. He said, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? So notice that he's building this contrast between the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the spirit. He gives this sampling list of horrible sin. And then he says, and if you're characterized by these, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that bothers people because, as Paul even admits in the passage, there are times when we struggle with the flesh. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but who's had a fit of rage lately? Who's lost their temper? Who's maybe been envious or jealous? I'm hoping you're avoiding the orgies, but, you know, uh, idolatry. Who's put other things first in our lives? You know? And there's idolatry in my life. I mean, I fail on some of these points. Does that mean I'm not going to go to heaven? Is that what Paul's teaching? No. In fact, in the, in the, you can see it more clearly if you were to read this as it was written in the, in the Greek. But where he talks about here, and, and those who do such things, that verb form is, is an active form where it's an ongoing. The idea is, this is part of the practices of my life. This is what I do. This is part of who I am. I do this stuff, and I'm regularly doing it. It's ongoing. It's not the battle and a failure, and then 1 John 1, 9, confessing my sin, but it's ongoing. In other words, if you read that sampling list... And you say, I'm a born-again Christian. I know Christ. But if the people around you, if we were to do some investigative journalism, and the people around you were to bear testimony of the fact that you've got this stuff going on in your life, on an ongoing basis, here's Paul's point. You had better recognize whether or not you're really saved and going to heaven because people who do this stuff are not, this is not Christian behavior. This is not born-again behavior. This is not the behavior of people who've been to the cross. All right? And so if you do this stuff, you better question whether or not you're going to heaven. That's, that's not the way believers in Christ are to live. That's what he's saying. And so he says, I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And then he says it again, against such things like these, there is no law. In other words, just like he said up in, in verse 18, you're not under law. Nobody, the Senate this week will not meet, our local congressmen will not meet to create a law to regulate gentleness, kindness, self-control. You don't need law. When you're under the control of the Spirit, there are no laws that are needed to regulate and hold back the sinfulness. Laws are to hold back evil. You're not under those kind of laws. Spiritual law or governmental laws. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25 says, and we'll stop so what I want to do this morning is I want to click off in a, in a template fashion as though we were doing a, uh, maybe even a Bible study around a table uh, in a smaller group. We're going to look at these nine characteristics that Paul gives that I believe are a sampling. It's not exhaustive in the same way that these are an example of the deeds of the flesh. Here's an example of the fruit of the spirit. Now, what is fruit? Think about it. I've got a little apple tree that I planted. I planted a tree in my yard for each of my grandchildren. And um, an apple tree for Noah. And I was mowing when I went by the other day. And I haven't pruned it. I don't know about fruit trees. I haven't paid attention. And I'm not seeing, I'm not sure it's going to have apples on it. And I think, maybe I've got to prune that tree. But I've seen lots of old apple trees have apples. 
but I know it's an apple tree and it's not going to be a fruit, it's not going to be a cherry tree and it's not going to have strawberries on it and it's not going to have pears on it or blueberries. I don't know much about fruit trees. What is fruit? Fruit is something that grows, right? It's something that is evident. It is something that is there on the branches. You walk up to a tree and it's got apples on it. It's an apple tree. It identifies. And that's that's what he's talking about. This sampling of this fruit that will grow. And it grows in your life. It just produces. It shows up. And so I want us to be encouraging our mothers, particularly this morning, that, that you need to stop worrying so much. Kids, you're going to pay me for this. Stop worrying so much about spelling tests and math and things like that. It all matters. But the greatest way you will impact the life of your child is by walking in step with the Spirit from the spillover of your life. And someday they'll turn around and think about their mother and they'll realize all of the things that they learned without even realizing it because of the fruit that just showed up in your life. Now this is, we're all beholding to this passage. You also want to have a little sliding scale in your mind here, maybe of one, that's no fruit, and ten, that's like abundance of fruit. As we click off these nine things, where am I? Am I showing that kind of fruit of the Spirit in my life, or am I down by a one, or am I closer to ten? Where am I on the sliding scale? That's up to you to be doing in your own life. The first one is love. Notice these nine markers, and this is the the markers that will influence our children above all else. Number one, love. It's agape love here. You know that in the Greek form, there are three kinds of words for love. One is eros. We get the English word erotic from it, and and that's self-explanatory. It's a physical kind of love, sensual kind of love. Secondly, we have phileo. That's a a, a brotherly love, all right? And that's the kind of love you've already experienced it this morning. You walked in. Maybe you were a little discouraged. You saw somebody that you know, a, a friend, or you shook hands maybe, or you got a cup of coffee with someone. You started to talk, and you realized that you were refreshed in your spirit already by the fellowship of believers. And you realize, if you're a man, say, you say, I just love the men of this church. I'm so encouraged by my friendships here. Or you ladies, as you gathered, you, it's so encouraging. It's a phileo love. I love. We love one another deeply at a brother-sister level. We're not biological brothers and sisters, but in Christ we're brothers and sisters, and it's a phileo love. And then there's agape love. And agape love is not difficult to understand when you think about it in the context of how God loves us. We're going to do the same three things with all nine of these things, and uh, we're going to click them off, so pay attention. We're going to define it, we're going to illustrate it, and we're going to see that it's commanded in Scripture. And so when we understand love, we recognize that it's defined. It's not simply pleasant emotions or good feelings. It's not good feelings. It really doesn't have anything to do with feelings at all. It is a willing, self-giving service that is a reflection of the kind of love with which we are loved by God. To illustrate it, we go to Romans 5.8. Here's what Romans 5.8 says. You don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to put your notes in your Bible. And later this week, an easy way for you to do a little bit of Bible study is to look up some of the verses that we won't get to today. But Romans 5.8 says this. But God, if you have a King James Bible, it said, but God commendeth his love. If you have an NIV, NIV, I think it says, um, but God demonstrates his love. The ESV, I believe, says, but God shows his love. God demonstrates, shows, commends, communicates his love for us in this, that Christ died for us while we were yet 
sinners. So in other words, a sinner is loved by God so much that Jesus sends his son to die in his place so that Christ pays the penalty for my sin in the eyes of God, and then Christ gives us his righteousness. That's what we accept at salvation, the righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ accounted onto my, over to, credited to my account. God does that. I can't do that. God does it. I just accept it as the free gift of salvation. But think about that kind of love. It's an undeserving love. It's a love that doesn't do anything to be earned. It's just, you're there in all of your dirt and filth and baggage. And you go to the cross and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to substitute into your place. And by admitting your sinfulness and accepting that for you by faith, you rest in the finished work of Christ. God takes away your sin, gives you the righteousness of Christ. And he does that because of his agape love. We are valuable to him even though we don't deserve it. That's agape love. It is a decision, not a feeling. It is a commitment, not a feeling. This love that is a love like God's, it is commanded in Ephesians 5, and it gets us to the second one. That's joy, the first fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. By the way, as we go down the line, you'll be thinking and recognize that all of these qualities are perfectly exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate model of all of these qualities You'll also recognize that essentially all of them, the final one or two, maybe not, they spill out of the character of God and his attributes. And so we love because God loved us and we reflect that kind of love. And then we have joy. Joy, it's defined, again, it's not an experience. It's not a feeling as a result of favorable circumstances. Most of us, if we, we have joy because we win the lottery or we think we will, we, you know, we, Something really good happened. Are you having a good day? Oh, I'm having a great day. Because circumstances went the way we thought were favorable. That's not what this kind of joy is. It's not the result of favorable circumstances. It is a deep down sense of well-being that is present in the heart of the person who knows that all is well between them and the Lord. We illustrate this with that amazing picture deep in the night in a Philippian jail where Paul and Silas, for preaching the gospel, have been beaten to a pulp, locked in chains and stocks in a stone dungeon in the middle of the night, in the middle of the city of Philippi. And it's after midnight. And what do we find them doing? Hissing, spitting. The jailer walks by and they spit on him. And they say, if you let me loose for one minute, I'll show you. Or doing their Jason Bourne thing and figuring out how to pick their locks and take their chain and cut through and get and go up through the ceiling and go out and get out of there. No. What do they do? They're singing hymns. They're praising the Lord and singing hymns. What a testimony of a deep-seated joy that never goes away, regardless of my circumstances. You cannot rock my joy. You cannot... Move it. You cannot take it away. You cannot erode it. Because my joy is above the circumstances. How are you doing on your scale, moms? With your love and your joy. It's commanded. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, you say always. I'll say rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah, you don't like that, do you? 
So let's say sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. That's not what the Bible says, does it? In fact, Paul knew he, that's how we think because he said in Philippians 4.4, 4, didn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember what he says next? I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let the joy be there. Thirdly, we have peace. Like joy, it is not circumstantial. It is a confidence that regardless of circumstances, God is in control. It's a confidence That God is in control, and so it brings peace into my life. You remember that wonderful passage in John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. That that was in response to Thomas' question, Lord, we don't know the way, tell us. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. that That where I am there you may be also. You know how that passage starts? John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. What are you stressed about? And he goes on to say, you believe in God, believe also in me. Their peace was dependent, their master. He had it in control. How do we illustrate this? There's a, there's a wonderful illustration, isn't there, in Mark 4 of Jesus being asleep in the boat. He's lying on a pile of nets and tarps. The huge storm has come along. The boat's going to turn over. The wind and the rain are whipping around. And the disciples are fearful for their lives. They shake their Lord Jesus awake. He gets up and he says, first of all, why are you guys worried? And then he looks at the storm and he says, peace, be still. He calms the storm. You keep your eyes on the skipper. The skipper is Jesus. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. There's peace there. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious for anything. It's commanded. Do not be anxious. Number four, patience. Defined as a calm, willing, accept, a calm willingness to accept situations that are painful and irritating Enduring injuries even inflicted by others. Boy, I think this is an important fruit of the Spirit that just shows up when you're growing in Christ. The Word of God is rich. You're growing as a Christian. We see this illustrated in the life of Christ in that amazing scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked the disciples to pray with him. They go to sleep three times and he doesn't, he doesn't even kick them into britches. He's just patient with them. Couldn't you just watch him pray with me a little bit? But even in his own prayer before his heavenly father, what's he saying? Lord, would you please remove this part of your will from my life? I don't like it. Let this cup pass away from me. But then he ends the prayer in surrender to the will of the father, doesn't he? And he says, yet not my will, but thine be done. That's where peace comes from. Peace comes from looking at my heavenly father and just saying, not my will, but yours be done. I don't really like the circumstances of my life. In fact, I'm not too happy with who I'm married with. I don't like my kids. I don't like my house. I wish I had a different car. That's a really good time to be quiet. and Stop talking and get your eyes on Jesus. Patience. It is a calm willingness to accept the situations that are painful and irritating. By the way, moms, the way you respond to your children's father here has a, a lot to do with what they're catching. They're going to learn so much about your character. You roll in your eyes, t- 
talking back, carrying on in anger with you, your husband or the children of your parent, the, the parent of your child. Patience, a willingness to accept situations that are painful and irritating. It's commanded, Colossians 3.12 in that great passage says to put it off, put off certain things and then put on like getting dressed. It says put on as God's chosen uh, and uh, as God's chosen people, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to put it on. We're to put it on. Number five, kindness. Stay with it. We'll click them off. Kindness defined as a genuine tender concern for others. A genuine tender concern for others. I read a story about Abraham Lincoln that touched my heart. I assume it's true. Um, The story is that despite his busy schedule during the active part of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often would visit the hospitals to cheer the wounded. On one occasion, he saw a young fellow who was near death on his cot. He walked over to the guy and he said, Is there anything I can do for you, boy? See. He said, would you please write a letter to my mother? Came the reply. Unrecognized by the soldier, the chief executive sat down and wrote as the youth told him what to say. The letter read, my dearest mother, I was badly hurt while doing my duty and I won't recover. Don't sorrow too much for me. May God bless you and father. Kiss Mary and John for me. The young man was too weak to go on, so Lincoln signed the letter for him and then added this postscript, written for your son by Abraham Lincoln. Asking to see the note, the soldier was astonished to discover who had shown him such kindness. Are you really our president, he asked. Yes, was the quiet answer. Lincoln went on to say, now is there anything else I can do for you? The lad feebly replied, would you please just hold my hand? And the story goes that the president sat and held his hand until he passed away right before dawn. That is kindness, isn't it? That is a mother's gentle kind of kindness. Just genuine, tender concern for others. I have to tell you that I, I am sure that I learned kindness from my mother more than any other person. I could take the next hour and tell you interesting and gross stories about all of the things my mom did to help people. Stuff that you can't make up as a pastor's wife of a little church in a couple different communities. I was thinking about one story about a kid that used to come to Sunday school. Mom kind of knew. Mom led up the Sunday school kids programs in our little church of about 60 people. And so vacation Bible schools and Sunday schools and things, she knew the kids in the neighborhood and One morning, it was in Illinois, South Chicago, and she looked out the window above her sink, and running on the lawn was a young teenage boy with no pants on, trying to hold his sweatshirt down. He was cold. There was a little bit of snow on the ground. His daddy was after him, and he ran. It was during school hours. My mom was surprised. I said, what did my mom do? She went to the door immediately. You come in here right now. And she got clothes for him, and she took care of him. You know, you don't sit down with a marker board and a note tablet and say, Now, children, let me teach you how to be kind. 
And we talk about it, we memorize verses, but if you want your children to live out kindness, you, you just demonstrate it as a fruit of the Spirit. They will understand exactly what kindness is. They might not always notice today. They might take their mother's kindness for granted. But someday they'll turn around and they will live that kindness out in the very same ways that you are demonstrating it. It's illustrated in the story of the Good Samaritan. You're familiar with that. It's commanded in Ephesians 4.32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Number six is goodness. It's defined as having to do with moral and spiritual excellence. Moral and spiritual excellence. It's a sweet kindness that can involve self-sacrifice. I think it's beautifully illustrated in Joseph's response to Mary's pregnancy in Matthew chapter 1. Remember when Joseph finds out that, that Mary is pregnant with the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. He's engaged, betrothed to her to be married. He's humiliated. He doesn't understand what's going on. But what does it say? But, but Joseph, a good and righteous man, the idea that he was a righteous man, he was a good man. He did not want Mary to be publicly humiliated. And so he, he took care of her privately so that she would not meet the public eye in her unexpected pregnancy. What a testimony of a, of a good man. Moral and spiritual excellence with a sweet kindness that can even involve self-sacrifice. It's commanded in Galatians 6. That leads us to number 7, faithfulness. Faithfulness defined as a loyal trustworthiness. Reliable. You're reliable. It's like God in Lamentations 3. Jeremiah wrote, His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We have a faithful God, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. I love the story of David and his loyal men in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Yesterday afternoon when I was down in the dungeon finishing this out, I was thinking about those guys, and it made my throat tighten up a little bit. I got emotional all by myself down at my desk. Those guys touched my heart, man. You remember the story? Uh, Israel is in battle David is embattled and, and things are not well. There's a battle line. The enemies of Israel are dominating some territory. David and his men are dug in. It's evidently in the heat of summer when they've been doing battle. They're thirsty. They haven't had any fresh water. And David knows exactly geographically where he is. In fact, he's back near Bethlehem. And he remembers that's where he grew up as a boy. And he knew where there were some wells. And he knew the wells that had the coolest spring water because he used to go, by, go there and get water. And he's, it's in the dark. They've been in battle. It has quieted down because of the darkness. And David doesn't catch himself. And he says out loud... Oh, if I just had a cool drink of water from my father's well there at Bethlehem. Three of his best men heard it, and they slip through enemy lines in the dark, and they go, get a, they go get a pouch of cool water, and they bring it to David, and David's heart breaks. It breaks because of their faithfulness to him. Do you remember what he does? He takes the water, and he pours it on the ground. He says, I'm not worthy to drink this water. You put your lives on the line. I will offer it as a drink offering to the Lord. And he lets the ground drink it as an offering to the Lord. You talk about faithfulness. Faithful men put their lives on the line to bring their loyal captain, who they were loyal to, a cool drink of water. It's commanded in 1 Corinthians 4.2 that stewards be found faithful. Number eight. Gentleness. Gentleness is defined as a humble and gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense while being free of any desire for revenge or retribution. This is impossible in the flesh, isn't it? 
to not want revenge or retribution? Are you kidding me? I long to put an elbow up next to that guy's head. Now, when you're controlled by the Spirit, you don't long to do that. You just take it. I, I, I have never seen my mother be mean to anyone. And I can't imagine that my mother would ever have wanted to hurt someone. We even had a wicked neighbor who's, he was um, uh, in retirement age. And my mom and dad lived in Michigan. She got caught in the snow and I pulled in behind her. She was in the snowbank. My mom's out in her dress trying to shovel her car out. And my neighbor was sitting backed up with a four-wheel drive truck waiting for her to get out of the road and wouldn't raise a hand to her. When he did raise a hand to her, he had one finger up. I want to tell you what I would love to do to him. He would never know it. So it would have been right between the eyes, in the flesh. My mother never said one unkind thing about that man. That's convicting to me. That's convicting to me. Gentleness illustrated in Stephen being stoned to death, only asking God to forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. It's commanded in Colossians 3.12. And that leads us to our ninth and final mark of an influential mother. Self-control defined as the ability to restrain passions and appetites. The ability to restrain passions and appetites. And mothers, if you're not working on this You need to be working on this with your children. All of these qualities are important, but I think in our culture, in our era, to teach our children to have self-control is so important, to restrain the appetites of the flesh. The Apostle Paul says, I beat my body lest I fail in the areas that I've even preached about. It's commanded in 2 Peter chapter 1, add to your faith virtue and to virtue love and to love self-control. Do that. Have you seen, number one, in conclusion, the inseparable bond here between the fruit of the Spirit and obedience to God's Word? Have you seen that? So in other words, if you're not walking in obedience to God's Word, these fruits of the Spirit will not be evident. And if these fruits of the Spirit are evident, it means that you are being obedient to the Word of God. Secondly, the Christian cannot make this fruit grow. You cannot make this grow. You cannot wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to grow this fruit in my life. What you can do is surrender to the Word of God, surrender to the will of God, have a spirit of pliability in the hand of God, following after Christ with a willing spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit will just produce. It will just show up. I've seen it in a lot of you. I'm getting to be around here a while, 23 years. And I see guys grow, and I'm with them, and I think, man, that guy's a different guy. He doesn't even know he's growing. The Spirit of God is just growing fruit in his life. The Spirit of God will grow you. The fruit will be there. You surrender to Christ. You have a willing obedience to the Word of God. And the fruit will produce. You can't stop it. You cannot not produce fruit if you're a Christian and you're walking with Christ. Number three, a life characterized by this fruit will have incalculable influence. It will have incalculable influence influence. I really don't know that I can remember one thing that my mom taught me with her words. I'm sure there were many, many, many things. Say please. Say thank you. She was my youth leader. She was my Sunday school teacher for many years. But I can hardly remember the things she taught me with her words, but I could stand here now the rest of the afternoon and tell you all of the stories about my mom 
and the fruit of the Spirit in her life that I just now remember. It's there. Moms, you're doing a better job than you think. Stop worrying. Stop telling yourself you're a terrible mom. Get your eyes on Jesus and watch the fruit begin to grow and it will impact the lives of your children. May God bless you in it. Let's stand together and close in prayer. And so, Father, we thank you for our mothers today. We don't know where we'd be without them. We would be lost souls. Thank you for all the ways you've used moms in our lives. Father, I want to lift up a special prayer for any of our single moms who are here today. That they would have a great ability to keep their eyes on you and trust in you and let the fruit of the Spirit grow in their lives as they raise up their children by themselves. Encourage their hearts. Father, for the dads here to encourage the moms and for our homes to be Christ-centered, that's our prayer, that's our desire. Thank you again for the beautiful display of young families in the front of the auditorium this morning. Bless them as they go their way now and raise up their children in the years ahead. Protect them, cover them, encourage them. Give us a good day now as we celebrate our mothers and as we reflect upon all that they mean to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may depart. Chairs stay down today.